I'm learning that's one of the elements of how I express my dharma is the scaling of intimacy. I've heard this phrase before, but it came alive for me very recently. I was leading one of these how to drop in to Esalen sessions. The energy was big because there was a lot of people in a small space. But one of my colleagues was in the room, so she was there to witness it. She said to me, it felt like you were having a conversation with every single person in the room. And I said, oh, yeah, and it feels like that. And that's what I love about teaching. And like even now, just with my intention, I'm hoping to just love everybody that's in the room, you know? So that's, that's what I think I mean when I say scaling intimacy. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Sadia Bruce, head of experiential programming at the Esalen Institute, where she also teaches yoga in the tradition of Krishnamacharya, but enjoys drawing from a rich array of teachers, a panoply of movement modalities, and indeed the entire spectrum of human experience to share an understanding of yoga that is integrative, sensorial, and enlivening. Sadia's work revolves around creating energized, radically inclusive learning environments that are guided by breath and driven by inquiry. She is also deeply committed to bringing yoga-based practices to non-traditional environments and to underserved populations, to mentoring new teachers and to reaching economically, ethnically, and culturally diverse populations. This interview was conducted live at Esalen on October 18th, 2023, and I'm quite sure you're going to love it. So you like the idea of us introducing ourselves? I do. Okay. I do. Okay. Shall I start? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Sam. I am the host of the Voices of Esalen podcast. I've been working at Esalen for about a decade now. I started the podcast in 2016 when I was an extended student in the maintenance department. Yeah, it has really changed my life in a really positive way. And I've put myself in the catbird seat. I've been able to position myself, gotten to talk to the people that I really have deeply desired to talk to in an in-depth way and postured that it was all for the benefit of Esalen. But of course, it was the benefit for, for me. But I just feel so deeply grateful to be in a position of a constant learner. I have, I have a deep gratitude for being able to sit as a student with Sadia Bruce, my friend, my colleague, and the person who I'll be interviewing this evening. Thank you, Sam. I'm Sadia. You know, I work in the programs department. My official title, if you'd like that, is head of experiential programming. And so in that capacity, I'm responsible for shaping the day-to-day experience for guests who are on self-guided retreat. I also teach on the schedule, teach a little bit of breath work, a little bit of meditation, a little bit of syncretic movement modality that I created while here, or that I conjured, I should say, while here I create nothing. And I've been here at Esalen just for a couple of years. So my relationship with Esalen, the formalized one, is only a couple of years old, but maybe we'll get into at some point in the interview, like kind of my Esalen origin story. How did I hear about this place as a child of immigrants growing up in suburban New Jersey? <laughs> and that's, I think that's a good intro. What do you think? I think that's great. Yeah. So I think that it would be really interesting for us to hear your origin story of you as a person. Mm. So can you bring me back to you as a child? Where are you and who are you? Where are you and who are you as a child? I like to share my about my pedigree. My parents met in a shopping mall in New Jersey. My mother is from the Philippines. My father's from West Africa, from Liberia, West Africa, a very small country on the western coast. My mother was a party girl who, you know, had gone to nursing school. She couldn't pass the board exam. She took it one time, two times, three times. Because she kept failing the exam, she had to get a job. And so she was a cashier at the Orient Express at Livingston Mall in New Jersey. My father, he was sent to school from Liberia by his father. His father was footing the bill, his undergrad, graduate school. He was supposed to be studying business so he could go back home and run the family business. But he decides, and he does not tell his father, who's bankrolling the education, that he's going to study music. And so he ends up getting two degrees in music, unbeknownst to his father until a little later. And I don't know the details of that revelation, but I'm sure they're good. But my father, you know, like any good music graduate school finisher, ended up selling guitar amps in Sam Goody. <laughs> and, so, and so my parents met at the mall. I think my father had a friend who was interested in my mother and said, hey, you know, come with me to go talk to this woman. And of course, you know, classic story. They are introduced and the rest is history. So, What were his degrees in music? 
pedagogy, music pedagogy. He's a singer, yeah, but he was a classical voice mainly, but he was also really drawn to jazz. And so he would, from what I understand, have these constant like kind of um, ruptures and friction with his, his instructors who wanted him to choose one or the other. Oh. <laughs> so was there jazz in your house growing up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, all the time. My father, you know, he was a songwriter. He was writing a lot of stuff. He was performing a lot of stuff, but also on the side, he would be in operatic performances. And so mm-hmm. that energy was always with us. Music was always in the house. My mother is Filipino, as I've mentioned, and Filipinos are, they come out of the womb, highly musical, like advanced skills in music. <laughs> and so, you know, I, my family, quite musical, mother also musical. You know, my parents allowed me, they would allow me to draw on the walls of my room. Solitude was something that I I found refuge in. Mm-hmm. Often play music, I would sing music, I would attempt to fold in with the neighborhood children and quickly realize that I was designed to be a lone wolf. <laughs> As a child, at around age 9 or 10, my mother every weekend would go on a little shopping trip. She would go to a clothing store in a shopping plaza, a little like strip mall, and I would ask her to be deposited at the bookstore while she would go and do whatever shopping she was doing. And so I'd go to Book World in West Caldwell, New Jersey, and I would make a beeline for like the occult section and the new age <laughs> section, and just like directly there, I don't know what possessed me. I don't know. There was no real influence of that in my home. My parents... You know, they're fairly spiritual people. They grew up not religious, but in religion. But as adults, they're pretty fluid and flexible where spirituality is concerned. So it could have been that freedom of exploration that was in me that caused me to make a beeline for the New Age section. But, you know, once I started it, I would select any random book, you know, probably based on the cover and turn it over and read the the synopsis and quickly get sucked in. And in all of these books, and these are books like books by Gary Zukav and like the Dancing Wooly Masters. And there's a woman who wrote this book called Creative Visualization and on and on. It's a long list of classic books from that particular era. But in every book, this Esalen name would be mentioned. Mm. Esalen, Esalen. Mm. I'm saying, what is Esalen? I'm about nine or 10 at this point. And so that was how the seed was planted. And so the seed was planted, you know, a few decades ago. Um, But these books were my companions when I would be alone and kind of suffering as a teenager does in the suburbs. (laughs) Is reading, reading Gary Zukav, learning about, you know, how to meditate and visualize the future that I'd like to call in and all these things. And what did you want to be when you grew up? I think at that age, my phrase that I would offer people was that I wanted to be a public intellectual. How embarrassed, how cringe. Awesome. And I think, you know where I got that phrase from? From reading Bell Hooks as a teenager. Mm. And Bell Hooks actually saved my life a little bit because, mm. you know, as a, as a young black girl growing up in a suburb where it is relatively diverse, but, you know, th- that diversity can, can be a, a boon, it can be an advantage, but, you know, social stratification still exists in, in environments where there is diversity. And so, you know, a lot of the haves were white folks and a lot of the have-nots were not white folks. And so, you know, as a, as a kid who has, doesn't have the language, is still growing into themselves and still piecing the world together, you automatically, you kind of fall into that. And so I had a lot of, you know, I, I experienced a lot of challenges in school mm-hmm. with teachers who were not, I, I didn't feel really received by my teachers. There's a lot of implicit bias in schools at this time, and that language was not even in schools. But anyway, I share all that to say that I encountered bell hooks in high school and it just she rocked my world she introduced me to this thing that she calls radical black female subjectivity and that is you know we have these conceptions of how people should be who they should be how they should move in the world particularly black women and in in black culture which is very it can be very fractured but you know we're expected to just like certain things and fall in line in certain ways and do things in certain ways associate with certain people pursue certain paths pursue certain professions, but this phrase, it just unlocked the fury of freedom in me. Mm. And I felt so 
I don't know, just seen and known. Because also as a teenager, my musical tastes and my social tastes were already very, very broad. And I don't know if that was a function of coming from a mixed family, but I was very into like rock music and all, I was very into hip hop too, quite into hip hop, but also dabbling in things that I wasn't supposed to be dabbling in. And so to encounter bell hooks and to encounter this phrase, radical black female subjectivity, like it, it rocked me. So you ended up at Howard for undergraduate. Howard University is probably the most cosmopolitan place I've ever been in my life, the Mm. most international, the most culturally rich. You know, I didn't want to go to Howard, but they offered me a scholarship and my parents were like, oh, cool, that's where you're going to school. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went and it was with, you know, some reluctance. But as soon as I landed, this idea of radical subjectivity became real and I could see it playing itself out. And I saw different ways of being black. What is blackness? How rich is it? And I was really given like a, a, it's not even a crash course. It's still moving through my body to Mm. this day. But that experience informs so much of how I started to live and how how I move now. You mentioned your path kind of led you to finishing college at Columbia, yeah. where you studied sociology. Yeah. And so there was actually a big break between my, my schooling. So I went to Howard. I found yoga. I was doing the yoga, just dabbling in it. And then some years passed. I had several lives, as many people who come to the mm. work of teaching yes. yoga do. I you know, worked in fashion for a little while. I was an SAT tutor for a while, but it was like a... I, I left Howard, so I, I had essentially dropped out of school. But before I'd done that, I started working for the Princeton Review. So I was a 19-year-old kid teaching 17-year-old kids how to take a test. And it was through that, like being essentially teaching my peers, but also having to hold, you know, the seat of the teacher and have some quality of authority, some command of whatever content I was sharing mm-hmm. so that they would receive what I was offering, mm-hmm. you know. And so that experience, it really was formative in terms of what I do now. But after I left Howard, I continued that work. I had a friend who um, introduced me to a guy who was running this really like ridiculous operation in his basement apartment. I'd moved back to my home town. He had this tiny little basement apartment that had a few rooms, but the apartment was not even as, maybe not even half the size of this room. I think he dropped out of his PhD math program at Princeton and decided he would tutor people for the SAT. And at that time, it was booming business. So he and I connected. We would work in his little shitty basement apartment that was filthy, but we were good. We were getting results. I had a range of students, some students very serious. They needed a certain score to get into a certain school. Other students would come stoned. Some would come crying. I don't want to go to college. I don't know how to tell my parents. Like it was just the gamut of people. And so it was this experience that allowed me to discover my dharma of teaching. What was unlocked for you? First of all, this idea of being in a non-hierarchical relationship with someone you're teaching, you're imparting information to. And I, I don't think I was consciously aware of what I was doing and how powerful it was for these kids to come and to be met by their peer, essentially. And I would meet kids who literally they would say, I don't want to go to college. And I would have to learn how to steward this time. Their parents are spending money. How do I give them what their parents think they need, but also like meet them and receive them, meet them where they are and give the, the kid what he or she or they needed, Mm. you know, so I I learned that. I also learned that, you know, teaching is not at all about the content. It's about the transmission. The content is almost a vehicle for transmission of love, essentially. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. So you're saying that teaching is not so much about the thing that is being taught. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really believe that now. And it it increases with every moment, even as I'm sitting here. (laughs) I think the real function of a teacher, regardless of what they're teaching, is to make another teacher. And the only way you can do that is by meeting your student with absolute humility. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Take me a little bit through this journey of you 
getting interested in becoming a yoga teacher, yeah. like the deepening of your practice and I don't know when that idea began to appeal to you. Yeah, I was not interested at all in becoming a yoga teacher. I'm still not sure if I'm interested, <laughs> but it's too late. It's too late. I'm too deep in the game now. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, after Howard, I left, I was doing this SAT teaching. It was pretty, you know, it, it was a big part of my life. And then I decided with all of my childhood friends that I would also move to Brooklyn. And so I landed in Brooklyn and decided, hey, you know, I, I'm in the city now. There are all these studios, all these world-class teachers just at your fingertips. Why don't you get into the yoga a little bit, girl? Like, why don't you start, like, dabbling a little bit a little bit more? And so I, I started just to become a, a student, a sincere student. Mm. And so I just dropped into this New York life and became, you know, kind of a starving blocked artist <laughs> and I, I I didn't have many I, I didn't have much means to mm. pursue yoga in a serious way but I found ways to study with some beautiful beautiful teachers and so what was scene, the scene like the yoga scene the in Brooklyn yoga at, scene that time? at this time in New York City this is like 2013 was booming and so you know yogis in the room you might know uh, of yoga works you know that was a studio that was started in LA by Alan Finger and Mati Azrati. Alan also started a studio in New York called Yoga Zone. He started Ishta Yoga. But at this time, like the scene was booming mm. and in a substantive way. So you could throw a stone and go study with a teacher who had been steeped in practice. Mm. And so Yoga Works was a huge operation at that time in New York City. It was still, it was booming in LA as well, which is where it originated. But you know, they had a studio in Soho that I would go to that was multi-floored. Mm. And, you know, at every hour of the day, there was a class going on. And then also at that time, you know, uh, Dharma Mitra was based in New York and teaching there. Mati Azrati would pass through there a lot. Rod Stryker would pass through New York City a lot. Alan Finger, who is a meditation guy who started this lineage called Ishta after he opened Yoga Works in L.A., was there. If they were not based there, Leslie Kamenoff, who started the Breathing Project, was there. The Breathing Project was there there. Amy Matthews was there, who's a student of Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, and just so many people everywhere. Mm. And you could just take your, your, your pick. It was like an abundance of study opportunity. I'm really curious about what constitutes a high quality yoga experience, a high quality yoga class. How do you separate that from just a class that's just pretty good? Yeah, high high quality teaching. I think, you know, teaching itself is an expression and an extension of studentship. Mm -hmm. And so I think you know and you feel when you're in the presence of, of a teacher who is essentially just a very advanced student. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wow. probably the maybe the, the thing. And what does that mean? How does it express itself in the room? I mean, there's a, there's a command of oneself, I think. There's a command of one's energy. I think there is a, an attention to the relational piece, mm -hmm. but I think each teacher is quite different. Like Rod Stryker, for example, he's quite a, you know, he's a relational guy, but his way of being relational quite different from someone else's where, you know, some, some teachers are actively kind of reading the room and, and moving and shape-shifting their teaching to meet the demands of the room. A teacher like Rod, and I, I, I think I'm, I'm correct and safe in saying this, you know, he's, he's so like self-possessed and embodies what he teaches that the room kind of moves around him. Mm. And that's, it, it's, a, it's almost the other end of the spectrum, but equally as potent, equally as valuable. But there is, a, there, there is a knowing, and maybe his relationality is more vertical than horizontal. And so he's so this that the room enters a, a, a field. In all these high-quality yoga classes, is there a sort of philosophical or intellectual inquiry going on? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Like a, a, a teacher, not to harp on Rod, but a teacher like Rod does weave scripture and philosophy into his teachings actively. Mm. Some other experiences that I've had with teachers that I would consider, you know, high quality, and it's a funny, funny yeah. phrase, they, they don't weave in scripture at all. Mm. But there's some quality of devotion and reverence that is embedded in the way that they show up to the room. Mm. And so I think there are so many ways to you know, offer a, a, an experience to folks. I think one is to have humility for the folks that you're standing in, in front of or have, have humility, you know, be willing as a teacher to kind of sit at the feet of your students before anything else. 
I think, to be really established in whatever it is your your personal practices, whatever you're studying, is very, very important. I think it shows up to the room as well. Reading the room is important, but for me, it's important to shapeshift with the energy of the room, mm. but I don't think it's important for everyone. It's a relay as well. It's a relay, and so you, as a student entering a room, you are part of the, the band. The teacher is like the band leader, mm. you know, and you are also, you're, you're trading fours, essentially, is what I tell a lot of, like, teacher training students, is that when you step into the room, you're the band leader, but you are, you're trading fours with your student, and wow. so you have to receive what they're playing, and ideally, what you offer is responsive to what it is they're sharing with you. And sometimes that's verbally if you're in a facilitation context, but sometimes it's it's just energetic if you're leading an asana class, for example, or breath work or something. So at that time that yoga began to like really have a hold on you, you told me that yoga exploded your mind, exploded your body. What about this discipline really got you? Well, I think what kind of hooked me and drew me in was that you know, as a child, I was also, I didn't mention this, I was pretty athletic and, and very physical in addition to being kind of tapped in. And so the yoga, it allowed me to express myself in that way. Yeah, so the yoga answered that, that call that I had and didn't know that I had. I met this this teacher who introduced me to the teachings of Desikachar. And Desikachar, you know, kind of centers breath. Desikachar teaches what some folks call therapeutic yoga. And so, you know, Krishnamacharya is considered like kind of the, the grandfather of modern yoga. He had three students. One was Iyengar, one was Desikachar, and one was uh, Patabi Joyce. So Iyengar, Iyengar yoga, very precise, very rooted in alignment and anatomy, very clear, and very kind of a stringent practice. But I find it very beautiful. I love to go to Iyengar class and be like whipped into shape. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's on the other end of the spectrum, in a way, uh, Patabi Joyce, who, you know, Ashtanga yoga, that kind of athletic form of yoga, vinyasa yoga, power vinyasa, all these things derive from his work. Desikachar was Krishnamacharya's son, and his work was maybe the most closely aligned with his father, and, and I was going to say, don't quote me on that, but I'm being recorded, so <laughs> maybe his, his work is most aligned with his father's, but it was about adapting the practice to the individual student. Yeah, it was about adapting the practice, and a part of a large part of that was this focusing on breath. And so I met this teacher who introduced me to the teachings of Desikachar, who introduced me to centering breath in an asana practice, and it blew my life open. It changed my whole world. Becoming sensitized to breath, which is you know as you all know, is the vehicle of life force energy. It allowed me to to tap into my own emotionality. And so a lot of the struggles I had as a young person, this depression that I thought, and I was in fact in many ways moving through, was because I, I was not, I didn't have the language or the capacity or the support to navigate this big emotionality that has now become like my superpower as far as I'm concerned. And so practicing yoga in a way that centered breath, moving as breath as I like to share in classes, it unlocked something. It allowed me to receive more, not just of the world outside, but of myself. And that, like, it has changed everything. It really, really has. And that's why every class I lead is breath this, breath that, breath the other thing. If I could just, you know, create a whole other suite of classes as breath, 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 I would do it. <laughs> because this experience of, like, coming home to breath mm -hmm. and, you know, using asana practice as returning the body to its rightful position as a vessel for breath, mm -hmm. yeah, it brought me home to, to me. And this coming home to me, coming home to my emotionality, developing this thing that we talk about so much, self-compassion, right? It's, this term is thrown around so much, but very hard to access, I think. Sometimes we try to access it by having compassion for the other. Sometimes that works, but oftentimes, and I found this to be true even today sometimes, I use that outward extension of compassion to other people as a means of avoiding compassion for myself. And so this coming home to breath, this practicing, this receiving, opening in such a way that these waves can move through me and I can have the grief and I can have the rage and the sorrow and the joy and really feel them, it has allowed me to truly meet other people. Yeah. 
and it is not a performance anymore. I'm not using it as a, although, you know, we can get into that too, but I'm not using it as a, oh gosh, I, people talk about compassion. Let me try to be nice to people as a means of showing compassion, but it's not, that's not what it is. I learned. I just caught something that you said about it not being a performance. And you said something to me the other day about these teachings aren't mine, mm-hmm. right? This is a, this, this isn't for me. So just this idea about there's an aspect of teaching in performance, but teaching cannot be performative. Yeah. Yeah. I did say that. So there's an element of teaching that is performance. You're in front of a room, you're being tasked with holding the container. You have to use your voice and modulate your energy to like corral the energy of the room. And so that is a lot of performance. Also, you're in front of people. It's a visual thing. And so with your physicality, you're inviting people into an experience. So that is the performance aspect. But the performativity comes when the teaching is, is not, it has nothing to do with who's there and what's in here. It's just this kind of, it, it's a performance. And so maybe I'll, this is a time to talk about a woman whose work has influenced me a lot, this woman named Patsy Roddenberg. I can't talk enough about her. She, she's an acting coach. Uh, she's British, and she has coached every major British actor. This woman has, has, coached, uh, has coached them. And please look her up if you can, Patsy Roddenberg. But she has this body of work called the, the Three Circles of Energy. And so she says, you know, the first circle, and, and people are habituated to one of these three circles. So the first circle of energy, people are very kind of interiorized, and people who are, tend to be in the first circle, this is how, you know, they would meet a room if they had to. They certainly wouldn't have a microphone on, and, you know, they, they probably wouldn't be sitting in front of this room, but if they were, this is how they would meet you. And then the opposite of that, the other end of the spectrum, is a third circle of energy where I would kind of, um, I would be aware that you all are in the room, but my offering to you is not at all concerned with what is going on. I'm not really worried about sharing anything. I'm worried about, you know, how I appear and like how, you know, just what you're thinking about, I don't know, me, I guess. But, you know, there's value in being interiorized and knowing who and what you are at any given moment. There's value in being able to show up to a room full of people and to make eye contact with them and to use your body and your physicality, your voice, to try to loop them into something. But Patsy says, and I agree, that, you know, people who have this quality of, I've been using radical presence, which many people use that phrase, but the second circle of energy is where, you know, you are essentially doing both at the same time, but you're taking the most generative aspects of each, the, the, the first and the third circle, you're taking them and you're meeting the people that you're in a space with in the second. Right. And it's such a beautiful way to mm-hmm. be. And, and it's like when you're in the presence of somebody who's in that second circle energy, in that second circle presence, it's like, it's like medicine. Oh my gosh, it's like medicine. And this place, you know, for all of the swirling that we experience, it's filled with people who are in the second circle. Mm-hmm. And it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, it's just, it's so beautiful. <laughs> Do you find that you're able to be there when, when you're teaching? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost, I feel like I, I have to. Yeah, I feel like I have to. And that's not like singing my praises like, hey, I'm in the second circle all the all time. The time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that, but it's, I think this place invites us to be there. It invites us to be there. And certainly, you know, as a teacher, you must have the element of performance. And so third circle must be present. But something about the way this land talks to you, something about the way people are showing up so openly, vulnerably, it invites you into a softening and into yourself a little bit. And so you just, you know, the second circle, it's easy to drop into here, I think. Yeah. What about inclusivity and diversity? Were were these part of the discussion when you were first dropping into being a serious yoga student? You know, when I was, the, the whole New York yoga scene era, that 2010 time, it, this was not on anyone's radar at all. But I was, in fact, often the only brown body in any room. These would be rooms of 60 people sometimes. Sometimes it would be a room of 10 people. But I would have, 
you know, different experiences and just rooted in implicit bias that we've now all woken up to. But, you know, I would show up to certain, I, I remember specifically, and I've had to do like a forgiveness practice around <laughs> this particular person, but it's a known teacher who is amazing. Her work is amazing. And so I decided with a friend of mine, also a black yoga teacher, and we were few and far between, at least visibly at the time, we decide, hey, we're going to go take a class with this person. And this person has written books and things, beautiful books, by the way. And so we, we go to one of these workshops. I think it must have been on, um, was it on the pelvic floor? Maybe, I can't remember. But we go in, there are not that many people in, in the room. But we walk in, and the woman looks like very mystified. as to, Like, why, why? It's like, oh, hi, welcome. And it didn't feel good. And who knows why she did that or why she met us that way. But at that time and at that age, at that stage of life for me, it's very easy to interpret that in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And so, and also, instances like that would happen all the time, all the time, all the time. And so you begin to collect these things mm -hmm. and it starts to collect in you and you start to, you know, it shapes the way you show up. And so, yeah, to answer your question, no, it was not, it was not a thing when I, when I entered, you know, when I started teaching and certainly when I started, you know, practicing sincerely. Yeah. It was not on anyone's lips, in anyone's heart. You just show up to the room, do your yoga. People would be weird and you'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> and is it part of your practice, your mission, the reason why you show up as a teacher? Is it, you know, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, like, yeah, gosh, it's so multi-layered. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, being met this way as, as you know, a, at the time, and even now, you know, now there's so many of us, but at the time when I started teaching, I was one of a very few number of black or brown yoga teachers who were teaching in kind of big ways and, and showing up to spaces that were essentially white spaces. And so that shaped me. It also shaped how I showed up to the room and how I showed up in my teaching. Mm -hmm because I was very guarded and, you know, bracing against, will people even receive me? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, not oftentimes, sometimes I would be met with instances where I was not being received at all. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that would happen, it would happen, it would happen. I would try to just lean into the folks and the instances where I was being received. But as a result of this, like, nervousness and this concern around perception of me rooted in implicit bias, it really like, hmm, it really, yeah, I'm trying to talk a little bit more, be a little more granular, specific, and illuminating about how it, it affected the way I would show up to the room. I, I know you and I talked a little bit about this, you know, concept <laughs> that I'm naming uh, somatic code switching. Yeah. And so I would have to learn how to carry my body in a way that would allow me to be taken seriously. Is the other layer to this, the intersectionality, intersectional element of this is that I appear very young. <laughs> and so that colliding with being in a brown body, being in a female body, I would have to figure out ways to show up in the room so that people would take me seriously. And you know, my way of dress, my style of speech is not really, I, I code switch all the time, but that, would you I, would you define just for the benefit of folks oh, who might yes. not know what code switching is? Was what what that is? Sure. Oh, geez, my God, I didn't know I'd have to do that today. <laughs> code switching is when typically you know it, it's used. You you're talking about how how you speak to people or how you show up in social situations, and so people who belong to certain cultures. Maybe I'll say people who belong to cultures that are not of the uh, the, the dominant paradigm. When we are in kind of generalized situations, we find, uh, those of us who belong to these other cultures, non-dominant cultures, when we're in generalized situations, mixed company, we often mute our natural expression. We don't use expressions that we would use when we're among family and friends if they're of our culture. Certain cultural expressions, whether that's how you stand or walk or how you dress, how you, everything, the way you show up in the world, you mute it so that you're better able to be received and to meld and, and you know, assimilate essentially to an environment. So there's a kind of somatic code switching then oh, too. Oh, for sure, for mm. sure, for sure. 
And that, you know, this is not just the, we're talking about culture and I've mentioned race a number of times, but it's not exclusive to that at all. There was a time, when I moved to Brooklyn, I lived in a neighborhood where catcalling was very prevalent. And so for me, and a lot of women I, I learned over the years, you would somatically code switch in order to get from your apartment to the subway without anyone catcalling you. And so there are ways that you kind of contort your body, ways that you dress, ways that you, you know, speak, ways that you just even breathe, the rhythm of your walk, which, which the rhythm of my walk would change, I should say. And it's just this constant, like, contortion, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so early days of teaching for me were tons of contortion in so many ways. My body, the way I would dress, the way I would speak, the language I would use, Mm -hmm. on and on and on, like this, yeah. Through the the iteration of teaching, did this change? Oh, for sure, because as you, you know, you get your reps in, your confidence builds, Mm -hmm. you keep studying your command of your material, if you can say that builds, you keep practicing your alignment vertically, inner alignment becomes stronger and stronger. And so all these things, you know, keep evolving and evolving so that you are comfortable being who and as you are in any given situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, as a result of not always being taken seriously for various reasons, for whatever reasons there were, it caused me to really deepen down into the craft of teaching and to Mm -hmm. deepen my practice, to deepen my practice so I could feel spiritually protected from what I would be met with, to deepen my command of material so that I could show up to the room and really know that I had something to offer folks. 2020 kind of marked this moment of racial reckoning for the country. At what point were you in your yoga teaching and how did it affect the trajectory of what you were doing? You know, by the time 2020 did roll around, by that time I'd been maybe almost 10 years in the game of teaching. And so I'd gotten my reps in as a teacher, as a practitioner. And so every company, every organization scrambling to diversify the ranks. And so I benefited from that. But luckily, when I showed up to the table, I was offering lots, you know, and it, it was a mixed bag for me, you know, emotionally, energetically, to have these experiences offered to me for the reasons that they were a little uncomfortable, but then to show up and to be very prepared to rise to the occasion felt good. Yes. Yeah. yeah. At around this time, you know, I, I started leading a lot of Kripalu yoga teacher trainings mm-hmm. and that experience, so thankful for that experience, you know, even though the impetus for it was maybe not ideal, but it allowed me to really like deepen into my, expand into my dharma and learn about, learn a little bit more to reverse engineer this teaching that I'd been doing for a little while. Interesting. And was, was a lot of that remote? Oh yeah, it was all remote. What is that like? It was nuts. It was nuts because when you are trying to transmit love essentially, but also information in a two-dimensional way, you you have become essentially flattened. You have to go into the third circle in order to keep people's attention. And so that was very intense. It was very intense. And these trainings, they are intense if anyone has done any sort of embodiment teacher training. Long, long hours, lots and lots of content. And it was all on Zoom. So add all of that to being two-dimensionalized and to having to be in the third circle now, trying to rally the energy that is dispersed across time and space. (laughs) All of this virtual teaching was how I really learned and had an embodied understanding that, you know, to teach is really to scale intimacy. And so we had a lot of you know, because training teachers, that kind of teaching, it's, it's meta, but it's also a little bit deeper because you get to talk about the craft of teaching with people. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of being able to do that, there was an energy created in this virtual room somehow. Yeah. And I think it's also just part of my, I'm learning that's one of the elements of how I express my Dharma is the scaling of intimacy. You know, the phrase came, I've, I've heard this phrase before, but it came alive for me very recently. I was leading one of these how to drop in to Esalen sessions. I was covering for JJ and it was in rooftop. And so the room, the energy was big because there was a lot of people in a small space. But one of my colleagues was in the room, and so she was there to witness it. And afterwards, she said to me, wow, it felt like, and there were maybe 40 people in the room or something, a little more than that. She said to me, it felt like you were having a conversation with every single person in the room. And I said, oh, oh, wow. Yeah, and it feels like that. And that's what I love about 
teaching and that's so intimate you know it's so intimate and like even now like the way that I'm talking to you if there were more people in the room there would be a way whether it's literally making eye contact or just with my intention I'm hoping to just love everybody that's in the room you know so that's that's what I think I mean when I say scaling intimacy about how you first came to Esalen. When did that happen and, and why? Yeah. Over, you know, 20 years or so, I kept saying, oh, I have to go do a residential program at Esalen. I have to go do one. I have to go do one. And I never it was able to do it. Life circumstance and this kind of thing didn't allow me to do it. I was also, you know, I, I had eventually in New York become a full-time teacher and that hustle is intense. Oh, it's intense. It's like, you know, it's like having several full-time jobs, having to hustle, to, you're an entrepreneur, essentially. You're also having to travel physically to across long distances. And then I, I you know, 2020 came, and I, it was that I was explaining that was why I could not come to Esalen because I was so into the craft and into studying. It just didn't seem right. And so I think you know, around 2020 was when Esalen started the teacher in residence program. Maybe I think that's when. It's not when I heard about it, but yeah, 2021. It's like, oh yeah, maybe I should, I know we're in the middle of like global chaos, but maybe I, maybe I should go to Esalen for that reason. <laughs> and so I log on to the Esalen website and I see that they are doing this teacher in residence program. I apply, I feel in my bones, oh yeah, now is finally the time for me to get to this place. And of course, you know, it, it comes to pass and Esalen and I meet and we fall in love and we're still together. <laughs> <laughs> So what is it like living in Big Sur after having, you know, you grew up in the Northeast, you spent a lot of time in the Northeast. What is it like being on this land for you? Is it inherently healing or is that too far a stretch? What effect does it have on you? It, it's quite stirring, as folks who do live here know, to, to be on this land all the time, even most of the time, even half of the time of your life. It's, it's very, very stirring. And so there is a healing element. Yeah. You know, the, there also there's utility and a necessity to occasionally remove yourself from the stir of the land. Yeah. And so at this point, going back to New York for me is very regulating for my nervous system. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Because also the work of, you know, kind of being a pranic DJ and corralling energy and, you know, rallying your own energy and doing all this being on the land, the changes of energy that come with the shifts and guests, it's very, very activating. It's more activating than 10 New York cities as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, now at this point, you know, the din of languages I don't understand, the rhythm of the subway, people cursing at each other, children laughing, the sound of dominoes being clapped down on a table, the sound of high heels walking down cement, you know, all these kinds of things are just so poetic to me. Yeah. And I, every time I, I go home, it's just, it's such a, ah, which is so funny, so ironic. You mentioned interfacing with guests and how powerful that is why and what about that lights you up? Yeah, you know, I, I have a friend who's a social worker and uh, she once said to me, it's, it's an honor to be with people suffering. And not that anyone, everyone coming here is suffering, but oftentimes people are coming in a quite a vulnerable state. So maybe we can shift that to say it's an honor to be with people's vulnerability. Are you yeah. a natural empath? Is that something that comes easy to you? I want to say yes. It's a bit cringe. It's like telling people you're a vegan. Like, I'm a, I'm a vegan. Okay. I'm an empath. I think, I think everyone is, you know. Yeah. And no offense to vegans. I dabble in veganism myself. But <laughs> yeah, I think, I think everyone naturally is. But yeah, it's definitely alive in me. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I, I'm learning how to work with and to steward so that it's less of like this kind of energetic liability and more of a a, a tool and like a, yeah, a tool. History here is, is really important with regards to the sort of the underlying ethos and the myth of Esalen and the Mount Rushmore of Esalen, as most of us know, Alan Watts, Joseph Campbell, Abraham Maslow. And I'm curious for you, what figures are interesting to you and what names might be often overlooked? Well, part of me, as I saw the question, I saw it, you know, prior to this and I thought, my first thought, transparently, was we need to get rid of the idea of even having a Rushmore. So there's that. <laughs> but then, you know, figures that 
I would, I would like on my theoretical non-Rushmore, Rushmore. Charlotte Selver, of yeah. course, would, yeah. be, would be one. Yeah. yeah, Selver pioneered sensory awareness and worked with Watts and Fritz and many other folks to bring this work to people. If I'm not mistaken, she led the first experiential workshop at Esalen mm -hmm. the year, maybe 63 or 69, 63, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, you know, that's my work now too, is to kind of steward and to lead these experiential happenings. My office is named after Charlotte Selver, and so I've got her picture hanging there on my non-Rushmore Rushmore. The other, the other figure, of course, as many folks know, is Baba Tunde Olatunji, yeah, whose name I feel has been a little bit forgotten in, in kind of the story of Esalen. And granted, he wasn't around during the early years, but was certainly a, a, a presence here. Mm -hmm. And his work and, you know, Yoruban culture, Nigerian culture, these rhythms influence some of the work that came out of here, including five rhythms. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not mistaken, he accompanied Gabrielle yeah. quite a bit. And so I need Baba on the non-Rushmore Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, thank you for presenting him. Sure. That's wonderful. And it's cool that we've been able to have one of the guys who drummed with him quite a bit, Sangha of the Valley, yes. here several times yes. and bringing his own lightness, his light spirit. Um, Sadia, tell us about uh, Go Within, which is coming up at Esalen in ah. December and January. Yeah, yeah. So the seasonal series, I feel like I'm entering the sales pitch now. The seasonal series... Uh, situation. We started in the summer with Summer Groove, and so I joked on an all-hands meeting that, you know, winter, the winter series go within is Summer Groove with a coat on. What was Summer Groove? <laughs> <laughs> it was <laughs> it's the self-guided experience just amplified. And so my vision with it in general is to, you know, bring back kind of the Esalen essence where, you know, there's a quality of spontaneity in the air, try to call out the creativity and the many creative geniuses that we have walking around here, get them to contribute whatever it is they feel comfortable contributing. And, you know, using the existing scaffolding, the existing schedule, the existing classes, but kind of building them out with this seasonal focus. And so we also will invite a bunch of uh, teachers and residents. We'll invite some artists and residents. And we had like pretty nice success with it in the summer. And so in the winter, I'm really going to try to like deepen down into this. And so one of the folks that I've invited and who will be here is Laraji. Laraji is um, ambient music pioneer. He's an amazing guy. If you've not heard of him, Google him, L-A-R-A-A-J-I. He was discovered by Brian Eno, who you may have heard of, another musician, producer, in uh, Washington Square Park in New York City in the 70s. But Laraji has made over 50 albums, maybe, and has collaborated with a long list of folks. He's kind of the godfather of guys like East Forest in terms of making this contemplative music, music that's supportive of meditation and of dropping in in so many other different ways. He'll, he'll be here. He also teaches laughter yoga and is just like, yeah, his energy is just medicinal. His music is sublime. It is so gorgeous. Um, please listen to him and please come to the, the winter series. He'll be here from December 22nd to the 29th. He'll be like our artists in residence. You know, I, I asked him intentionally, not only for his body of work, but also because, you know, Laraji went to Howard as well and also grew up in New Jersey. Yeah, so we have that in common. But, you know, he, he's an elder. He's an African-American man. He has largely, like, been under the radar and probably intentionally to some degree, but I feel like his work, it, it's, it, I mean, human potential, yeah. it, it's like this. I'm surprised he hasn't been here several times already. And so I'm really trying to use these series as, as a way of expanding what's possible, bringing in folks that should have been here a long time ago, but also folks that, who should be here now. Yeah, yeah, so I'm excited about that. Another person I've been in conversation with is a guy named Aaron Taylor Kuffner. He's an artist based in Brooklyn. He's, his work is called the Gamelatron. And so the, the, the Gamelan is an Indonesian ancient instrument, little brass drums often played in orchestra, I guess you can say. I don't know how many people are in a Gamelan orchestra, but gorgeous music. You've probably, if you don't know what the Gamelan is, you've heard the sound before. 
And so Aaron makes these robotic gamelan orchestras, essentially. And so he is fusing this ancient music and instrument with the present and, and the future. And he creates what are essentially like, like a player piano. It's like player gamelatron. And so he makes works that are very site-specific, and then he composes music that's also specific to a site, which is connected, and the, the pieces are connected to an app that he has designed. And you can deploy the music either you know, on a timed basis or a user can just select what they want to hear. And it's just beautiful, ghostly, gorgeous music. And his work, you know, I, I encountered it in New York City about 10 years ago at his first gallery showing. And that was amazing. I was on a date with someone whose name I forget, but the art I didn't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Let's uh, see if any of these nice people have any uh, questions. Before we conclude this evening, did anything bubble up for people in the audience? If you do have a question, you can say it, and I'll, I'll repeat it. I had a quick question. I'm doing this uh, Design Life You Want, and a uh, question that keeps coming up here is, uh, what is your heart's desire? Oof. Oh, my God. <laughs> my God. Well, huh. Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting that you ask, because I think in the teaching... In the work that I do here, I've been very kind of focused on what other people want, getting other people to tap into what they want. And I've almost become so fixated on it that my connection to my own desires could use a little repairing. And so there are things that I know I want, and part of what I want is to continue doing exactly what I'm doing here, but to make more art, to make a, a work of art that is comprised of the written word would be nice. <laughs> My heart's desire also. Sometimes when folks ask that question too, I toggle between, should I give a granular answer or should I give the grand answer? One of the granular answers is I'd like to get involved in some philanthropic work. You know, I'd like to go back to my homelands, Liberia and the Philippines, and maybe work with women and children in these places. That is definitely one of my heart's deep callings and maybe make some art there. But yeah, wow, what a question. But part of my answer to it, I know, is that, you know, admittedly, transparently, sometimes the work that I do is a means of conveniently turning away from what's bubbling up in here. And there's so much in there. I feel it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking. I'll be thinking about that for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for being here. And Sadia, thank you so much for your candor, oh, for your wisdom. You. Just beautiful. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for your questions, too. Thank you very much. Have an amazing stay. And I'm switching now to service mode. <laughs> Have an amazing stay. If you have any questions, please feel free to ask. <laughs> Teaching breath work tomorrow at 10.15 in the room next door. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org. 